Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. This week on the podcast, we have an extra special guest, Chris Miller, Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, Gene Kirkpatrick, Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Eurasia Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and author of multiple books, including his latest, which we are going to talk about today, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, an excellent account of the decades-long battle to control what has emerged as the world's most critical resource, microchip technology. It's been called an essential read for understanding our modern world, and it does live up to that billing. Microchips run virtually everything from missiles to microwaves, smartphones to the stock market, and today's military, economic, and geopolitical power are dependent on these chips. It's a multi-decade long story that covers the Cold War arms race, the rise of Silicon Valley, Japan's economic dominance in the 80s, the growing conflict between the US and China, and the Taiwan-China conflict as well. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Chris. Thanks for having me. So how did the idea to write Chip War come about for you? Well, I'm a historian of Russia by training, and I wanted to understand the drivers of the Cold War arms race, which is a critical issue in Russian history. But the more I looked at the question of military power over the 20th century, the more I realized the key driver was the application of computing capabilities to military systems. And the first semiconductors I learned as I was doing this research emerged out of missile guidance systems. And it's only after the development into military systems that they came to play such a big role in consumer devices. Uh, And as I thought more and more about the ways computing power had transformed our society, I, I came to think that everyone, myself included, before I wrote this book, had really underestimated the way that semiconductors had transformed economies and structured politics all around the world. So you, you write, basically, that semiconductors have defined the world we live in, determining the shape of international politics, the structure of the world economy, and the balance of military power. That's a big statement, and, and you, you stick to it. Well, I, I think so. If you, if you look at um, uh, economic prosperity, uh, so much of it has been driven uh, in recent decades by technological advances. And it's not just the, the tech sector, it's um, across the economy. Uh, ways we produce and provide services have been transformed by technology. Think of healthcare, think of education, think of uh, mining. You know, everywhere you look, there's computing uh, changing how the economy uh, functions. And so certainly in economic terms, I think it's, it's indisputable that computing power has been the key transformative force over the last half century. And in terms of politics as well, uh, military power today is in no small part a function of computing capabilities. And the fact that the U.S. has over the last half century been the most capable of deploying computing to military systems explains uh, much of its military advantage. How would you explain chips to your friends or family? Your, you know, Why is this an important topic to the layman out there? What are these things and how did they become so important? So a chip is just a small piece of silicon in most cases with lots and lots of tiny circuits carved into it. Uh, there are on an advanced chip, 15 or so billion transistors, each of which is a small 
uh, switch that turns on and off. When it's on, it produces a one, when it's off, it produces a zero. And these provide all of the ones and zeros undergirding all software, all computing, all data storage and manufacturing semiconductors with millions or billions of tiny circuits carved into them is an extraordinarily difficult and complex manufacturing process. And it's become concentrated in the hands of just a small number of companies, uh, some in the US and Europe and Japan, but uh, in particular in Taiwan, which today produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips, as well as over a third of the new computing power the world adds each year. And the concentration of the industry uh, in East Asia adds a geopolitical and military uh, aspect uh, to the chip industry that most people aren't aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think the book does a phenomenal job uh, of highlighting the geopolitical uh, conflict between China and the U.S. over chips and the fact that Taiwan is baked in there and Taiwan and China and the U.S. have, um, you, you know, a lot of interaction and you, you don't realize, realize that the chips play into that. Uh, but one thing you did talk about was the global supply chain, which was severely disrupted during COVID and for other reasons. And I think you know, the average person first started thinking about chips and how important they are when they were trying to buy a car and prices were were through the roof. What happened? Well, the, the interesting part of the chip shortage is actually that it, it happened amid a increase in the production of chips. Uh, chip output grew in both years of the pandemic. Uh, the problem was that demand grew even faster. As people began working from home, they bought new PCs, companies upgraded their data center infrastructure. And so demand outstripped supply. And that caused tremendous shortages, especially in industries like autos, which hadn't planned very well uh, for their chip purchases and which rely on a lot of chips. The new car can have a thousand chips inside, uh, each one of which is different from uh, the other. And managing the delivery of all these chips was something that car companies hadn't really uh, put enough work into. And so as the chip shortage uh, emerged, it rippled throughout the manufacturing economy, causing delays in industries that previously hadn't thought of themselves as reliant on computing power and helping the rest of us understand the ways that chips weren't just about smartphones. The entire industrial economy, the entire manufacturing sector is critically dependent on a steady supply of semiconductors. So the demand uh, was uh, increased significantly, but were there also logistical transport issues uh, and manufacturing issues as a result of COVID or was that just more coincidental to the timing? There, there were some, um, but I, I would say that by far the most important driver was the demand increase. Um, the, the chip industry actually, I think, did quite well in adjusting to the disruptions of the pandemic. Chip factories don't have that many people inside of them, uh, and so they were relatively insulated compared to other manufacturing uh, sectors. The key driver was the surge in demand, which was very unexpected. And, and as you write in the book, no other facet of the economy is dependent on so few firms. Are we better off or more resilient a couple of years later, or could this type of thing happen again? Well, uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer. Right now, the chip industry has taken a, a turn as the economy has slowed, and many parts of the industry now face a, an excess of supply uh, as demand has dried up. But I think as soon as the economy begins picking up again, we'll be uh, back to many chip facilities working at full capacity. And, and that's what you want. You want an industry at exactly full capacity, but uh, not any more than that. Um, traditionally, the chip industry has done a reasonable job of striking a, a profitable balance over the economic uh, cycle. But I think now there's new complexities, given that it's not just a question of managing businesses, but also predicting the way geopolitics is going to uh, impact business models. 
So you you write in the book, you're talking about China in this instance, that it's trying its hardest to develop its own semiconductor technology to free itself from the U.S.'s chip choke. And if it succeeds, it'll remake the global economy and the balance of, of military power. Talk a little bit about that, um, you know, tug of war between China and the U.S. over the, the chip industry. Well, the, the key issue is the role semiconductors play in artificial intelligence, because if you want to train an AI system, you need to train it in a data center full of some of the most advanced chips humans have ever made. And right now, the key chips for training AI systems are designed in the United States and manufactured in Taiwan. And Chinese data centers are reliant on importing these chips. The U.S. is trying to cut off China's access to uh, to uh, these semiconductors with the goal of holding back China's advances in AI uh, and giving the U.S. an opportunity to leap ahead and deploy its new capabilities to military and intelligence systems. How does Taiwan fit into this? Is it possible that China could cut off the U.S.'s access to, uh, to, to Taiwan? Well, if there's a, if there's a conflict, uh, there's no doubt there would be a massive disruption to semiconductor supply chains. And this is, the, I think, the most important risk hanging over the global economy that people aren't thinking about. Uh, the chip shortage demonstrated the huge number of industries that are dependent on semiconductors. But as I mentioned, those are two years in 2020 and 2021 where actually the quantity of chips increased. If there was a disruption to uh, production in Taiwan, it'd be difficult to buy a smartphone anywhere in the world. Auto production would be hugely disrupted. Data centers, PC, telecoms infrastructure, dishwashers, microwaves, coffee makers would also have semiconductors inside. It's hard to think of an industry that wouldn't be impacted. And trying to build up the capacity that currently exists in Taiwan elsewhere would take a long time, years, uh, to fully replace. The U.S.-China rivalry, could it lead to one side using Taiwan, I guess, for its own purposes? Or are we so interlocked in a global economy that China doing something like that or the U.S. doing something like that would just be extremely counterproductive? Well, it would certainly be counterproductive in economic terms. And our hope is that uh, policymakers on both sides, um, the economic ramifications into account. But I, I, I worry because history suggests that there are many examples of countries that are deep, deeply economically integrated that nevertheless find themselves in conflict. Before World War I, Germany and Japan were major trading partners, major foreign investment partners, all the way up to July 1914. And then right after the war started, Britain launched a blockade intended to reduce food supplies into Germany. The, the shift from economic integration to economic warfare happened almost overnight. And so I worry that we shouldn't put too much faith in economic interconnection to guarantee peace. What would you put faith in then? Well, I think I think military deterrence is what defended Taiwan for much of the Cold War. And I think that's where we've seen a real change. And 20 years ago, it was obvious if there were a war over Taiwan, which side would win. And today that's less obvious. And that's the key driver, I think, of instability. You talk about one other threat to Taiwan semiconductor industry, which is earthquake risk, and not only in there, but here in here in the U.S. as well. Can you just touch on that a little bit? It, it was well, fascinating. Well, one of the ironies is that uh, many of the key nodes in the chip supply chain also are in seismically active regions. Silicon Valley, of course, um, a key example. Taiwan as well. Japan too. The fact is, though, that because the chip industry is so concentrated, because the a limited number of buildings worldwide producing our advanced semiconductors that almost anywhere you put them, you're at risk of some sort of uh, some sort of accident or some sort of natural disaster disrupting supply. And 
The trouble is that the concentration is critical to the economic efficiency of the industry. We need the economy to scale that concentration is provided, but we also need to worry about them uh, and make sure we've got the resilience that we need and got the um, security measures we need to deal with uh, any sort of threats or natural disasters that emerge. It's a, it's a, a tough balance to strike. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Absolutely. At a high level, how did we get to the point where we were we are dependent on so few firms in this industry? Well, the industry has been concentrating uh, over the last several decades because the economies of scale uh, are tremendous. Bigger okay. chip companies produce more efficiently, and they're able to hone their technology over time, uh, and in the process, uh, catch up uh, and, and overtake their rivals. And so there's good reasons to build up scale, and there's good reasons for concentration. But the benefits technologically uh, create risks in terms of resilience and geopolitics. If you were advising any U.S. administration on how to protect our economy from, you know, this dynamic that you're talking about, what, what would your advice be? Well, I think that the CHIPS Act that was passed last year or funded last year is the right uh, approach uh, okay. to build up some more chip supply in the United States and also to encourage other countries to do the same. Uh, China, Japan is taking similar steps, Europe, India, uh, South Korea. And my view is that the more diversification we have in terms of geography, the more insulated we are from geopolitical risk. And the goal of that would be to have chips manufactured here and in other countries and, and not as heavily dependent on uh, Taiwan. Well, the optimal situation would be to, in my view, to reestablish deterrence in which everyone knew that we could defend Taiwan and we wouldn't have to worry about the risk of war. But that's going to take time if it's ever possible. And there's question marks over that. And so in the interim, we need to prepare for worst case scenarios that we must hope never happen, but we also need to be realistic about the reality that their likelihood does appear to be rising. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we have you for a, a limited amount of time. So I did want to ask you a, a couple of uh, wrap up questions. And I, I do encourage everyone to, to read the book. If you wanted people to know one thing about the semiconductor industry or the chip war topic, what, what would it be? Well, I think the, the the key to understanding the industry is that semiconductors aren't just about uh, civilian devices. 98% of semiconductors that are produced go into smartphones or PCs or consumer devices, but they're critical for military power. And so when governments, US, China, Japan, and others think about chips, they're thinking about their criticality for military systems. And the fact that chips are dual use, economically critical and military critical, makes them very difficult to regulate. That was Chris Miller, author of Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. We tried to pack a lot in a short amount of time. I encourage you all to read the book and learn more about this critical resource that is essential to the global economy and could also be a cause of military conflict with China if we're not careful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This is 
This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.